He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Michael King was one of New Zealand's most respected and notable historians, writing or editing more than 30 books examining our past, our present and our future. He talked to Kim a bunch of times over the years, but this chat from November 2003 is especially poignant because Dr. King died tragically in a car accident just a few months later. Really hope you enjoy it. It um, sometimes seems as if Michael King has always been here writing about us being Pākehā and being Pākehā now bookended a period of intense soul-searching for New Zealanders. His biographies of Princess Tipuia and Dem Finna Cooper made Māori culture more accessible to non-Māori than it had been for many before. Same with his biographies of literary greats Frank Sargison and Janet Frame, New Zealand made accessible to itself. His new book is about the whole damn lot, really. It's the penguin history of New Zealand, again accessible and interesting. It's officially launched on Monday, day after tomorrow. A few days ago, he received an inaugural Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement, along with Hone Tufare and Janet Frame. And also this Monday, he begins his treatment for throat cancer. I wondered how fortuitous his life has been. I mean, is his writing career as he planned it? No. I wanted to write. I wanted to earn a living from writing, and initially that had to be journalism because there was no other way of doing it. And I only launched into authorship full-time when I had enough strings in my bow to fall back on, like journalism again or teaching or whatever. Uh, I never looked further ahead than just writing the kind of books I wanted to write. There were virtually no literary awards at that stage and very few literary fellowships, so the best I could hope for, I thought, was just to live off the marketplace. And that, in fact, didn't happen. And what was the first book you did? The Princess Tepuya, wasn't it? Princess Tepuya was the first major book. I had done one ahead of that on on Māori tattooing while I was still working as a journalist, but the Tepuya biography was the first one that was a a major book, yeah. And that led on to the biography of Dame Fina Cooper? Yes, in a kind of way. It actually locked me into Māori history for about a decade, which I had never planned. No, and for which you got some flack. Oh, yeah, but been there, done that, don't really want to go into that again. I mean, my second book was actually going to be on James K. Baxter in my plan. I want to do biographies of different people, artists, politicians, sportsmen even. But the Tapuya book was unexpectedly successful. I mean, unexpected as far as the publishers were concerned. So I kept getting commissions to do more Maori history from publishers and from Maori. And that's why I went in that direction. And then, as you say, it got a bit tricky because one of the consequences of the Māori Renaissance was that Māori started to say, say, we want to represent our own culture in our own way. And I had no real argument with that and I had plenty of other things I wanted to do, so I moved on. But you'll notice from this book, um, Māori history history is always there. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're a nationalist New Zealander, you are you ought to be as interested and concerned as the Maori at the Maori part of the equation as the Pakeha part of the equation. And do you think that you've done something to redress what is um, uh, an appalling ignorance on the part of non Maori about Maori history? I don't know that I'm the one to say whether I have or whether whether I haven't. I would like to hope that I have because well, I actually... talk about you with James Bellish and Damon Sam. Yeah, and, okay, uh... okay. I mean, I I'm an old fashioned liberal person who believes that. 
knowledge and information dissolve prejudice and give people perspectives and enable them to understand you know, what's going on. So if it's had that effect, that's good. That's one of the reasons you do it. But you also have to accept that hundreds of thousands of people don't read books and don't get that information and insight. No, but it must filter down somehow. Yes, it does. And it's one of the reasons when I do books, I usually go on the road to promote them and even do things like talkback. Because when you're on a talkback radio program, it's not like talking to national radio listeners. You're talking to people who, by and large, don't read books, but you can still get at them and fire a bit of information at them. I think I might have to distance myself from that comment, lest I be accused of elite snobbery. It's all on you, Michael, as they say. Societies, you say in the preface to the Penguin History of New Zealand, are conditioned not so much by events as by group memories of events, which seems to lend credibility to the filtering down process, that it's not what happens, it's what somebody tells you has happened and somebody told them that it had happened. Yes, yes. I'm thinking of the big things, like the Depression, like the effect of world wars, um, like even, you know, the effects of things like that Liberal government in New Zealand that gave women the vote and introduced old age pensions and so on. What's significant is not just that those things happened, but that people remembered them and it actually conditioned their lives. I think of my parents. My parents lives were entirely conditioned by the Depression and the Second World War, and that's why they wanted for themselves and their family a quiet suburban life with a job that you had for life. Values that in the 1960s, you know, as an angry adolescent, I kind of rejected. But now, of course, I understand much more about why they had those values. It's because they had those two enormously disrupting experiences that we never had and future generations won't have. No. What will form our characters, do you think? The sort of baby boomer characters, if you like. What will form us? Well... We don't have, as you say, those kind of iconic experiences. No, we don't. And we don't have the great binding experiences because, I mean, you know, for something like the Second World War, virtually the whole country was mobilised. All the eligible men, virtually, were in the services. Um, Almost every family had someone away or lost, and that gave them a kind of camaraderie that lasted till the end of their lives. We don't have that. I mean, you know, whereas my father might look back on battles fought, I, I suppose, look back on the the early CND demonstrations or the anti-apartheid demonstrations. We, in part, were the generation that started to worry about what was going on in the rest of the world and whether or not we were acting appropriately. I mean, I'm beginning to get the impression that that what the current generation of 30-somethings is going to remember is, you know, the house that they couldn't afford to buy at auction. Well, yes, yes, sadly. All kinds of things that we used to regard as being basic New Zealand possibilities are kind of disappearing and diminishing like that. The is, it, to own... is it that or is it that people are caring so much more about that than about anything else now? And this is not necessarily a criticism of them. I mean, maybe they have a right to be anxious. Yeah, I think we will change our realities because things don't have to be the way they were. For my parents, again, it was important that you owned your own house and that you had access to a beach. Um, The next generation, of course, may finish up living in rental accommodation or apartment accommodation because they can't afford to own their own house. But in the long run, that may not turn out to be a terrible thing. I mean, one of the things that's happening in Auckland and Wellington in particular is that suddenly we have life in the inner cities again, which we didn't used to have. In 1950s, if we went into Wellington on Saturday and Sunday... They were ghost towns. Now they're alive because people are choosing to live in city apartments again. So there are all. It doesn't necessarily mean things are changing for the worse just because they're changing. Mm. Just your access to the beach comment, of course, mm. makes me think about the the seabed and foreshore controversy that's ongoing at the moment. And I don't know whether you care to comment on not so much what the possible resolution may be, although you may. 
but what it says about Maori Pakeha relations at the moment. It's an interesting issue, and I rather wish that it had blown up a little bit earlier because I had actually put the, be- the book to bed when it happened. I wondered. I was in the index <laughs> to see, first off, whether you well, covered it at all. there are relevant things. Yeah. You read about the Queen's Chain and yeah, there are yeah. things like that, and that's an important New Zealand value. That belief we had that turns out to be largely mistaken that we had the right to go anywhere by a river or a lake or the sea. One of those but, founding myths. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. But um, what would have interested me as a kind of cameo piece at the end of the book it would have been a, a marvellous way of looking at the current debate about what kind of nation we are, because it seems to me um, that the views of what sort of people or a nation we are condition how people react to it. So that, for example, you've got probably a mainstream view that we still are a bicultural society, we are Maori and Pākehā, but you've got that other very strong view that we are all just New Zealanders, the National Party single citizenship argument, and then I suppose you've got the Maori nationalist view that says we are tangata whenua and tau iwi, or indigenous people and foreign invaders. And those positions are represented in the positions people take on the seabed and foreshore issue. Um, in particular, the f- we're still coming to grips with whether or not Maori, because they were here first and have a treaty, should have access to things that non-Maori don't have. I don't have any difficulty with the fact that they ought to. For example, that people who have lived by the same stretch of coast for hundreds of years ought to have special rights to things like gathering seafood. But, of course, that's not how people are perceiving it. And to a lot of Pākehā, it was perceived as yet another Māori grab. When you say they ought to, mm. who's they? I'm talking, you mean, I'm talking about Māori? Yeah, I'm talking about individual hapu or iwi. All right. You know, what, what because, is not... I mean, as one of the points, and this has to be raised, and albeit you may think that it's a talkback issue, but mix, the... the Europeans and New Zealanders, as you and other historians have made clear, have mixed from the very early days, in the sealing days, in the whaling days. Um, for example, the Tapsell dynasty of, of Arawa, which you mention in your book, was fathered by a Dane called Philip Tapsell, and he and a whole lot of others all took Maori wives and had Maori families. Now, does that mean that that, that group is essentially founded by Pākehā, or did the Pākehā join the Maori and become Maori? In which case, how much Māori makes a Māori? And this is a question that's asked increasingly. Well, it's never been a matter of, of vulgar fractions. Um, the Tapsall family are Māori not because of Philip Tapsall, but because Philip Tapsall's descendants identified as being Māori with a Māori mother. Uh, and they certainly were. I mean, even Philip Tapsall himself was a Pākehā Māori in the sense that he spoke the language and became part of their culture and lived by their mores. It basically has to be a question of cultural identification. No matter how much Māori blood, in inverted commas, you've got, if you identify with Māori, you're accepted by other Māori as Māori and you live a life that practices Māori values, then you have every right to be Māori. From your observation, then, of the way we are getting along and the state we're in, do you think there is a solution to the seabed and foreshore issue that, on the one hand, won't lead to racial conflict, on the other hand, won't bring down the government? Yes, yes, and I think basically... What does it look like, that solution? I think it'll be like the solution that the government is currently offering but which is not being heard. It will be a clarification of customary rights for those very small number of Māori who are eligible for it. And I'm talking title about, or rights? Rights. Okay. Not title. And what the government is offering Māori in that dimension is more than has ever been offered before and a hell of a lot more than they would get from National Act or New Zealand First. And I, and I think Māori will eventually accept that. You know, the realists like the Shane Jones know this. They know that they're going to the table, they're talking, and they want to come away from the table with more than they had before. And, and the government is offering more than they've had before. 
But because, I suppose, of the emphasis with which the government rejected the idea of Māori title to satisfy the Pākehā constituency, Māori at the moment are blinded by that and they're not seeing what what is actually being offered to them of substance. So you have a very interesting explanation in your history about what you call the process of social accounting in Māori, early Māori. Uh, and you say, when the balance of generosity or power is in your favour, your mana and your people's mana are enlarged. Mm. And when you are in debt to your neighbours and seem to be, your mana is diminished. And so the imbalance uh, of utu needs levelling. And that's a description, yes, of early Māori society. Could it also be extended to Māori Pākehā relations? in the sense that if Māori feel slighted, if they feel that the government has denied them something, then it is necessary to redress the imbalance, and Māori continually feel that they are in a position of supplication, supplicant now. Yes, yes. I mean, really, I can only answer yes. That whole concept of utu or reciprocity, although you quote it there in the historical context, is still a very, very live reality of Māori life now. And so in a political sense, it's almost, it seems to me, insoluble because you have to be seen by Māori to be being over-generous, in fact, in order to get the reciprocity thing. But the Pākehā say, ah! You're giving too much to the Māori again. And Mm. so the government is always caught between those two stalls. One of the things Māori tried to do right at the outset was to involve Pākehā in their system of reciprocal obligations. Māori still want to do that. Um, I nonetheless think that when the shouting dies down and and Māori recognise what is being offered to them and that it is of substance, that that will be seen to be acceptable. But at the moment, they're listening to the rhetoric uh, and they're particularly listening to the rhetoric perhaps of the Māori nationalists who say that Pākehā are taking away yet another Māori right. right. And I mean, look, with the fiscal envelope, the fiscal hui envelope was a similar sort of dispute because what was at issue was not the fact that Māori didn't want to accept a million dollars but that the government has said this is all you're going to get and we're drawing a line underneath it and that seemed to be insulting. But that eventually died down. You also say in your preface to your book that it's fashionable to speak of the histories of a country as if they were all of equal value and validity, histories plural, and they are not of equal value and validity. What do you mean? What I mean is that some accounts are wrong. I don't go along with the idea that all stories have equal value and ought not to be interrogated or, or challenged. You know, for example, there were a group of Māori up the Wanganui River who believed that in the middle of the 19th century, poison flower bags were sent up to wipe them out in an act of genocide. That never happened. It's a rumour, it's a story, and it's taken root. Um, some people used to hate Peter Fraser in the Second World War because they said he had been a con- he had been a pacifist in the First World War and then he was a warmonger in the Second World War. That was strongly believed, but it was never true. He was never a pacifist. He simply didn't approve of conscription. So I still think it's the job of the historian to say some stories are right, they have an evidential base, some stories are wrong. And in doing this one, I haven't adopted the view that all stories have equal value. I have made decisions about which accounts of how things happened are more likely than other accounts. Mm. And I think you have to do that. I mean, there was a good book that David Young published on the Wanganui River called uh, Woven by Water. And he took the attitude that it was not his job to distinguish between these stories. And because he was a Pākehā writing about Māori stories, there's some justification. Judith Binney did much the same thing with her big book on Te Kōti, But I would not do that. I think I have a responsibility to use my training and my 
expertise as it's accumulated to give a pointer to readers as to which stories are more plausible than others. I mean, one of the stories that you've excavated and revealed, if you like, is the story of the Moriori. And, mm, and mm. again, you talk about that as, as you mm. have to in an mm. overarching history of New Zealand. There are still people, does it not weary you, mm. who write letters to the newspaper saying the Maori wiped the Moriori out, mm. what right have they to complain? Mm. Yes, it greatly wearies me. Uh, just as it worries me when I, I got a letter from someone saying my book was all wrong. He knows where the Moriori came from. They came from a Maori pa just near the current service station on the Walkworth Main Road intersection. He knows that because his grandfather told him. Yeah. You know, there are all these stories and all <laughs> these rumours. Some of these rumours, of course, like the Moriori one, take root and are pervasive because they have some value. And for Pākehā, as you say, the justified Euro- European colonisation of the Maori if they thought Maori had colonised Moriori. But mm. again, it's simply not true. And as a historian, I think I have a responsibility to say that and to show Show why it isn't true. And again, the story of the Waitaha people. Oh God, yes. Which you are you you're not prepared to say this is nonsense. Aren't I? I thought well, I did. no, no, no. I'm well. You said there is absolutely no evidence oh, yes. for the existence of the people called Waitaha, predecessors of Maori. There's no, yes, there were some. There were Waitaha people who were Maori. There was no evidence that four or five thousand years ago there were people here not Maori called Waitaha. Right. No archaeological evidence, no linguistic evidence, just absolutely nothing. And again, you have to say that because there are people going around the country with a mystical look in their eyes, who are in touch with the ancestors. They don't need evidence, and they're saying there used to be this wonderful people here who were in touch with the land and the sea and the soil. And why can't we all we all be like them? Mm. And of course, that's pervasive and attractive because we we do want to be like those sort of people. All right. So what is the difference? between a wishful thought or a sincerely felt belief like Moriori were wiped out by Maori like Waitaha people 5,000 years ago living in peace and harmony with nature. What is the difference between those things and Coupe discovering New Zealand or the canoes coming over? Things that are sort of maybe true have woven into myth become part of your culture. Evidence. Basically, Coupe was real. Coupe was probably real because there are so many place names that have his name, and because he is remembered by so many tribes as an ancestor and not as a god. I mean, you, some would argue that Maui was real, and Maui probably was originally, but not in New Zealand because the Maui myths are right through Polynesia. Mm. But there probably originally was someone called uh, called uh, called Maui. Um, we'll never be able to um, prove that Coupe existed in the sense of digging up a box of bones with Coupe's name written on it. Mm. But that story is so pervasive. I mean, one of the points of, perhaps the major point of Māori place names was to indicate who had rights to particular places. And those rights were established by being able to show that your ancestors had been there first or they had driven other people out and you had placed your tribal place names there with your ancestors' name on. There's nothing of that sort to indicate that Waitaha were here, but there is to indicate that somebody called Kupe was here. Probably not 950 AD when we were told he came, but almost certainly in the 13th and 14th century when the canoes came from eastern Polynesia. Because mm. as you say, the story of Kupe discovering New Zealand was Pākehā in origin. Yes, well you see, that's interesting. I, I feel I have to make that point. Um, that, that story and the story that New Zealand was called Aotearoa was not a Māori story. The reason that Māori now call New Zealand Aotearoa is because the school journal told them in 1915 that that was a good idea. It would be nice to have that name. So that became a Māori story and became a Māori myth, but it did so because of the Pākehā education system. There was a um, 
I don't, you wouldn't have seen it, I suppose. I bet you don't watch the E channel. No. But there was a piece on, um, on New Zealand where the bikini-clad presenter said, or God's own, as the indigenous inhabitants once called it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Okay, so what's the difference between the Waitaha people myth and the belief in a tanifa? One is deserving of respect, the other is not. Oh, no, it's not that. The, the main difference is that the people who believe in the Tanifa are largely Māori and the people who believe in Waitaha are largely Pākehā, led by Barry Brailsford. He got a few Māori uh, part of the group, but it is not a Māori story. Those stories about Tanifa in the Waikato swamps or wherever um, have been there for generations and, and are, if you like, you know, the Tonga or oral treasures of those people. It's interesting, you see. What is an oral treasure to one person is a load of nonsense to another. This crystal can cure me of anything. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. How do we, is it necessary to try to figure out what makes that difference between nonsense and a spiritual Tonga? Well, let's look at it this way. One of the points Bill English made about the Tanifa was that he has religious views and they are not enshrined in legislation. He doesn't think Maori religious views should be. But Bill English, like me, is a Roman Catholic. And you can be pretty sure that if the Vatican was at Pateraru or um, Calvary Hill was at the top of Mount Victoria or the Lake of uh, Galilee was in the Wairapa, then he would be protecting those sites and everybody Christian would be. Um, I think it's legitimate that Maori religion and expressions of it should be given some kind of respect. And my attitude would be to say not to prevent that happening, but to extend it to things that are important to the Pākehā cultural heritage. And of course in the book, you know, the, the example I mentioned is the fact that while the Tanifar was being saved at Mercer, Frank Sargison's ashes were being carved off um, his home in Esmond Road. Yeah. I would like to see a Wahi Tapu concept in the Resource Management Act that recognised both heritages. Yeah. It's um it's interesting you always talk about compassionate truths when when writing I about... No, always. I mean, uh, on and on you go. No, I, did, I did one. You yeah. have mentioned it, and <clears throat> people have cottoned onto it and have said compassionate truth. That's what Michael King does very well, particularly in relation to biographies of Janet Frame and Frank Snyderson. Did you have to employ that either consciously or in retrospect unconsciously on, on the history of New Zealand at all? I wouldn't so much say compassionate truth. I would say something like it. Perhaps um, perhaps an imaginative understanding of the people you're writing about as well as a purely evidential one. Yes, you try and get into the psyche and the minds and the cultures of the people you're writing about. That's one of the ways of understanding them. But you don't do it by taking a stab or a guess. You immerse yourself in the literature of what they said, the letters they wrote, their public statements and so on. And that's a valid thing for a historian to do. Could you have written this history with this tone 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely not. So what's changed in your mind? What has changed is that I had more raw material to work from. We have more, if you perhaps you know, compare it with the 1950s when Keith Sinclair did his Penguin History of New Zealand, very little New Zealand history had been written, very few theses had been done by postgraduates, and he took a lot of guesses. He, he had hunches about things, a lot of which turned out to be right. I had to have fewer hunches because I could go to either the written literature or I could go back to primary source material not available then that is available now. Mm. And being a historian, I, I usually bring this up in the context of biography, I actually don't make many guesses. If I haven't got an evidential base for saying something, I probably won't say it. Or I'll say this is a guess rather than say this is true. Have you changed your mind about anything over the years? I mean, for example, you're quite firm 
here you don't subscribe to the fatal impact oh, no, view of no, history. No, no. And as James Belich and Damon Salmond have written, you know, the Maori were vigorously mm. engaged with Pākehā in the early days. They mm. weren't helpless victims all along the way. Mm. Mm. Did you ever subscribe to the fatal impact? Yes, I did. I read the Alan Moorhead book, and it was Alan Moorhead who coined that phrase, mm. basically about what happened to Polynesians in the Pacific. And I would it was a think, stunning book, wasn't it? Oh, it's a wonderful time. book. And, and, it was, and it brought up one of those expressions like Tim Flannery's Future Eaters that oh. has gone into the language. And for a lot of people, that was shorthand for the evils of European colonisation, both the fact that they brought diseases, which kill people, and the fact they brought cultural concepts, which they forced on other people as being more important and more pervasive. So it's probably true that when I started to get involved in Māori history in the late 60s, I did subscribe to that. But what I continually encountered was not victims of fatal impact, but vigorous Māori people who were always um, competitive about what they did, whether it was other Māori or whether it was with Pākehā, and who showed no sign of being the victims of fatal impact at all, and still don't. In fact, with the momentum of the whole Māori Renaissance, Māori are possibly in a stronger position than any other colonised indigenous people on earth. Mm. And, and that's not to the credit, I'd have to say, well, it's partly to the credit of Pākehā, because the circumstances of the Treaty of Waitangi were unusual. A humanitarian group of people in government at the time the treaty was signed, and therefore there was a treaty, but it's mainly due to the competitive drive of Polynesian culture, part of which is the pursuit of mana, that makes Māori want to embrace competition. There's this wonderful little cameo that when... James Cook arrived off the New Zealand coast in 1769. Māori came out in canoes and threatened him and abused him and waved their patu about because that was a challenge. When he came into Botany Bay in Australia, a group of Aboriginal men fishing off the shore looked up, saw this boat, stared at it for about 30 seconds and then went on with what they were doing. Now that says something about the dynamics of those two cultures. I'm talking to Michael King, whose Penguin History of New Zealand is, um, is just out. Coming out on the 13th, yes. Very well. Um, you talk about, as as a number of other people do, the warlike history of Māori, the, the, the very brutal way in which they could behave towards one another. Um, and, for example, you talk about Hongi Hika, who killed 60 Hauraki people who believed he'd made peace. And yet, simultaneously, he was a fine character. I, I talked to Dorothy Ehrlich-Kluwer about how we can hold those two thoughts in our minds at the same time. Do you have any problem with that? I probably wouldn't say he was a fine character. <laughs> I would say he was acknowledged by his people as a fine character because according to the tikanga or customs of Māori life or tikanga or customs of Ngāpuhi, mm. he did very well. But according to the tikanga, of course, of uh, other Māori, they don't view him in quite the same light. Spiro Zavos taught you history at St. Pat's Silverstream. Mm. Does that seem a long time ago? Mm, was he does. a good history teacher? He was a marvellous history teacher. He was just out of university. He was full of enthusiasm for history. And he dropped that enthusiasm on us and made it contagious. And it was but what history were you taught then? Oh, well, it was, it was the syllabus. And it was largely British history. And it was British and European history. But it was the way Spiro taught it. It wasn't New Zealand history. For example, Spiro got us to do... Uh, as a major project about which there was some you know, leeway in the curriculum, got us all to do a mini-thesis. And I, at the age of 17, did a mini-thesis on why every major country in Europe had had a revolution but not Britain. And it was really heady stuff. I got right into it. I read lots of stuff. I greatly enjoyed it. And I thought, this is what being a historian is like, and I want more of it. You know that, um, 
that ad for tea on television where the curate or the minister oh, yes. does all sorts of somersaults and the lady in the front says, whatever he's on, I want it. Um, I felt that about history. You know, Spiro clearly was excited by the scholarship and he communicated that to us. And was it history or was it other people's lives or the way other people were? Or what was it? It was partly other people's lives, but it was a realisation that you could actually chart how things happen and why things happen, and as a result, have an understanding of real places, an understanding of how they came to be the way they are. Mm. And as you point out in this new book, the history of New Zealand is extraordinarily compressed because yes, it it's been so recent. Yes, that's right. And I've never thought of it that way before. I think of New Zealand being a young country, but being having a compressed history is a whole new way of looking at it. Mm. How's, how's that made your job easier? Oh, it's made my job easier in the sense that I haven't had to canvas as much evidence as I have if there have been people here for 6,000 years. And have- also because you've shaken the hand of the man who oh, shook there. the hand of oh, Sir yes. George Grey, who shook the hand yes. of Honey yes, I, I knew Tom Seddon when I was a student. Tom Seddon was Dick Seddon's son, and Tom Seddon had shaken George Gray's hand, and I would shaken Tom's hand. It made it all seem very close. Yeah. It did. And it is very close and very recent. It's of, I suppose it's of most relevance when you look at things like um, environmental history, that because what we've done to our country in 100 years, other people took 2,000 years to do, we've done it <laughs> yes. rather badly. Very efficient we've been uh, at destruction, you mean. But I think also that was one of the reasons why we were for a time the social laboratory of the world. One of the reasons we did things like votes for women and old age pensions before anybody else was because we were a young country without stultifying traditions that prevented those things being done. People tended to ask, if you're a 19th century politician, you tended to say, you know, why not rather than why. You felt that the agenda was open. And that was an extremely healthy thing. Do you think we still got that? We like to think we have, you know, that esprit and the yeah. number eight wire or whatever it is. We do like to think we have. That, that feeling came very much to the surface when um, the whole nuclear issue came to the top in the 1980s. That was another way in which we were seen as leading the world. That's the little engine that could. That's right. Um, I think it's, and it's a thing that comes right through from from. King's, uh, King Dick Seddon's days, God's own. We've gone on believing that. I think a lot of us still do believe it and there's some basis for it. The whole thing about the New Zealanders who go abroad and do things very well. Have you talked to James McNeish about his um, dancing peacocks? I haven't, no. Chris Laidlaw did a really good interview. Well, I was just going to say, I take issue with him because he talks about those men being exiles. Yes. New Zealanders exiles abroad. I don't see it that way at all. I think we've always exported people who chose to become expatriates, but they remain New Zealanders. They were just New Zealanders in other countries. And that's one of our traditions, giving bright people to the rest of the world but from Rutherford right through the McDermott. Yeah, yeah, but isn't the feeling often that they... They would like to go home, but they can't. And in that sense, they are exiled. There's, there's nothing there for them. It's a, you know, a land without but people. But they You know, I knew Dan Davin very well, and he's in that category, according to McNeish. And he definitely felt that he couldn't go back and find a job either in publishing or academia. But he didn't cease to be a New Zealander and he didn't feel exiled. And he threw his home open to New Zealanders in Oxford and he was the the sort of cultural high commissioner by reviewing New Zealand books, making sure New Zealanders were visible in the UK. It's wrong to call him an exile just because he couldn't live here. Mm. It's it's an argument with shades of... uh, subtlety and perhaps I'm just moving it further along the spectrum but I just think that idea that those people um, were underprivileged culturally because they didn't come home is wrong. I think they were still New Zealanders and they were living as New Zealanders in other parts of the world. Mm. Do you think there are many people here now who feel that they're exiled from the other side of the world? 
Do you know what I mean? I was talking to Peter Calder about his memoir of Travels with His Mother and his description of her was very poignant. And Mm. while while he said, no, she didn't feel like an exile, she really did feel as if that was home. Mm. She was going home at the age Mm. of 70-something back Mm. to England for the Mm. first time. Mm. I think that's still a reality for that age group. I mean, my parents and my grandparents always called Britain home, mm. even though... Dreaming they, of Sussex Downs. Well, not even that, because they had all run away from, from dark satanic mills. Yeah. Uh, they, they got, the family had got away because they hated it there. It was the next generations that thought of the uh, Sussex Downs. But that's almost gone. That's in that very old age group. I mean, most of us are now in the place that Peter Calder is. We, we, we recognise that we have an affinity with that place, but it ain't home, and we know that as soon as we hit the ground and talk to people. How's your health? Oh, I, well, oddly enough, I feel It's a leading well. question because I know <laughs> that you are, as we say, battling cancer. Would you like that expression used? Battling I'm not cancer. battling cancer yet. I may finish up battling cancer. I'm living with it at the moment. Um, I have cancer and I'm going, I'm about to start eight, eight weeks intensive uh, radiation and chemotherapy to try and kill the cancer I have. But it's come as a complete surprise to me because I never felt better in my life. But I know if it is allowed to run its course, I definitely will not feel better than I ever did in my life and I, and I will not be alive. So I'm going to do the treatment and I hope to come out the other side. How did you find out you had it if you feel so good? <clears throat> Lumps came up on my neck. And I'm one of those people who believes that as you grow old, you get aches and pains, and most of them go away after about a fortnight, and it's not worth spending $40 having a doctor tell you that. So I waited, but the lumps didn't go away. They got larger, and I went to the doctor, and they turned out to be secondaries because I had a throat examination, and there was a large tumour in the throat that I wasn't aware was there. And so this is eight weeks of, of probably feeling quite unpleasant. Oh, yes, it'll be very unpleasant. It'll be it'll be penance to give me brownie points for whatever is to follow. <laughs> but you're not. You're quite uh, sanguine about it. You're not preparing to meet your maker right now. No, um, not right now. You're I'm still not a Catholic, practicing Catholic. What do you mean by? I, I don't know. know. I never know what to answer. Well, once, no, I mean, Catholics are the only Catholic... people in the world that describe them as laps. They describe themselves, I'm a lapsed Catholic, and I don't understand what that is, and so I thought practicing might be the opposite. I think I'm a Catholic in the sense that somebody might be Jewish. I have that imprint upon me, and I always will, and it's part of my rich heritage. But I don't believe in the dogma and the doctrine. I've got some faith in the prayers and the grace, particularly at this time of my life, because I've always thought that the spirituality that's common to everybody actually is efficacious in doing things for your physical body and so forth. And I have to say that when the cancer became apparent, uh, the kind of letters and messages of support I got from people who told me they were praying for me actually buoyed me up in a way that I think was probably very good for my immune system. So these things do have an effect. Eight weeks is a long time from a man's life who's been as prolific as you. Will you be scribbling notes on your next book in between radio and chemo? My oncologist tells me that I will have um, something called a squidgy brain once they start the chemotherapy, that I won't be able to concentrate or particularly remember things. I'm prepared to let all that go. I'll work with it for as long as I can, and then I'll just put up with it until it's over and hope that in the process of recovery, my faculties will be returned to me. (laughs) And what is the next project? I'm currently writing a history of Waikato University, which was commissioned uh, a while ago for their 40th anniversary next year. That will be done. And beyond that, I want to do another biography. But I haven't quite yet settled on the subject. Oh, can you think like that? I mean, you say it's time. I want to do a biography now. Oh, well, I I should put it this way. 
I have two subjects in mind, both of which I would like to do, and I haven't yet settled upon which one it will be. And it might depend on what sort of funding I'm able to get, because they will be the kind of books that will not be highly popular commercially, but which I think ought to be done because they're about important people. No, and you've said that it's very, very hard to carry on writing. You talked about abandoning biography at one stage because of a lack of financial support in New Zealand. Yes, isn't it funny? Some people took offence at that, um, including Michael Laws, who uh, said I was greedy because I wanted... um, foundation support as well as earning money from books but good biographies particularly of New Zealanders who have also lived overseas require certain resources to be able to research them adequately and you will never get enough money back from the book alone to do that so the support is necessary I abandoned the biography of John Money the the New Zealand American sexologist because I simply couldn't get enough money to live in the United States long enough to be able to do it Mm. and I'm too old to live in the YMCA and hitchhike with a backpack on Um, I would want to do it you know in a degree of comfort that enabled me at least to work well I think there's a time in your life where you do do things the hard way, but then there's a time in your life when you say, I've been doing this for a long time, and if it isn't comfortable, and if I'm not going to enjoy doing it, I don't want to do it. Novel? Could you write a novel? I'm just yes, trying to think of something that you haven't done. You have a novel? But somebody pinched it. Rats. Um, a woman called Annie Prue <laughs> <laughs> published the shipping news. And when she got to Newfoundland, it was so like my Chatham Islands novel that I thought she must have been in my bottom drawer. And I know if I ever publish it now, people will say it was derivative. So we'll wait and see. Mm, Annie Prune, your bottom drawer, would be a scary prospect. Historian and author Michael King, his book, The Penguin History of New Zealand, is um, published by Penguin. It's one minute to ten.